I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning once again, everybody. We're coming to you live on July 2nd on this beautiful Let's Celebrate America weekend. We are, as always, Jamie Trecker, Jeremy Kitchen, Michael Sack, the team behind I-94. Today, we are joined by the translator Charlotte Mandel, who has just translated the Prix Goncourt winner, Matthias Annard's Compass. We'll be joined by her through the magic of Skype momentarily. Charlotte, can you hear us? We can hear you very faintly. Can you turn up your gain a little bit for us? We're having some technical difficulties here in the studio. We did lose a channel the other day. Jeremy, do you want to just give us a quick introduction while we try to sort this out? Sure. We're going to talk uh, to Charlotte today. We are also going to talk to one of the representatives from New Directions, but we are unable to get a hold of him on Skype, so we're having a little bit of technical problems today. But uh, Mike and I are big fans of Enyard. Um, he wrote Zone, Street of Thieves, and uh, this new one, Compass. Um, and so we reached out to New Directions to discuss these books. Um, well, actually, New Directions didn't publish the first two, but they picked them up for this one. This was also shortlisted for the Booker this year. Um, it was impressive. in the top three. Um, and uh, how are we doing with the? Charlotte, can you tell? Can you uh, tell us your experience working on this book? You're very quiet to us. Well, while we're figuring it out, as uh, Jeremy said, this is the third book to appear in English from Matthias Aynard, and we apologize, Charlotte, if we're pronouncing any names wrong. We do that a lot on the show. But uh, I think Compass came out first as in French, in the original, as Boussole, in 2015, which was right around the same time as a uh, another book that got a lot of praise and a lot of hype, submission by Michel Welbeck uh, and there's there's been some comparisons between the two writers I was actually hoping we could talk to Charlotte about that a little bit but Compass the new one in my opinion took off a little bit where where Zone left off Zone was marketed as and is a 500 page single sentence um, a difficult book it it is but and I and I found the same thing with with Compass. Once you get into the rhythm of it, it's just kind of it's kind of like listening to music. And Compass in Compass, one of the giant looming themes is music. It's narrated by a professor of music or a musicologist, an Austrian musicologist. Let's see if we've got Charlotte on the line. Charlotte, can you tell us a little bit about your experience working on this book? Can you hear me any better now? Yes, yes. better. Thank you. Thank okay. you for joining us, Charlotte. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Charlotte, where are, you, where are you joining us from again? Uh, I live in the Hudson Valley, um, two hours north of New York City. Oh, so. did you get hit by the flooding yesterday? A little bit, not too much. Yeah, there was quite a bit of rain. Well, <laughs> we're glad you're safe and sound and you're not underwater as the city of Utica is. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience on this book. What, what attracted you to translating this work? Um, this is the third novel by Mathias Enard that I've translated. Um, the first novel was actually a 500-page sentence 
So I'm kind of attracted to long books with long sentences and stream of consciousness narrative that kind of, um, it's something that I like doing because I don't generally read ahead when I translate. So um, I like sort of inhabiting the voice as I translate it. I, I like um, sort of going with it and not really um, knowing what comes next. So um, that's very true for Compass. <laughs> okay. Well, we actually have a reading and a selection from, from Compass. Why don't we play that to give our listeners a little quick taste of what the book is about? And then we're going to be right back with Charlotte. Uh, you're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Exploration. 12.55 a.m. I'd rather be in my bed, eyes in the dark, lying on my back, head resting on a soft pillow, than in the desert, even in the company of Felicia and David. Even in the company of Sarah, the desert is an extraordinarily uncomfortable place. I'm not even talking about the sand desert where you swallow silica all day long, all night long. It gets into all your orifices, your ears, your nostrils, and even your navel. I'm talking about the Syrian-style desert of stones, pebbles, boulders, rocky mountains, heaps, cairns, hills with here and there oases where it's a mystery how the red earth shows through. And then the Badia is covered with fields, winter wheat, or date palms. In Syria, it should be said that desert is a misnomer. There were people even in the most remote regions, nomads or soldiers, and it was enough for a woman to stop to pee behind a mound by the side of the road for a Bedouin to immediately pop up and nonchalantly observe the milky hindquarters of the stunned Westerner, Sarah in this case, whom we saw running toward the car, disheveled, holding up her pants with one hand as if she'd just seen a ghoul. Bilger and I thought at first that jackal or snake or even a scorpion had lashed out at her buttocks, but having overcome her fright, she explained to us, laughing uproariously, that a red and white kefia had appeared behind a rock, and that beneath that kefia there was a tanned nomad, standing arms crossed, face impassive, observing in silence what for him too must have been a strange apparition, a foreign woman squatting in his desert. This region has been inhabited since the third millennium BC. You have just seen the proof. And that was a reading from Compass. So that was a passage involving Sarah, the, the love interest of the narrator. That's who was being scared by the, the Bedouin while she was peeing behind a, a rock, I think. Um, Charlotte, can you tell us how you found Zone or how Zone found you or you found Matthias or the other way yeah, around? Yeah, I, I, um, I read an excerpt from Zone in a digest that was published by the French Publishers Agency. And I just fell in love with that. And I thought that I had to translate that. So um, I translated that excerpt. This was back when they were trying to find publishers for books, and they would have translators choose excerpts to translate. Um, and then I heard that Chad Post at Open Letter was interested in publishing Zone. So I wrote to him and asked him if I could translate it for them, and, uh, and he said yes. And so um, Open Letter published the first two books, Zone and Street of Thieves. Uh, I, did, I translated both of those for Open Letter. Um, I just knew that when I saw that excerpt that it was the best thing I'd read in French in a long time. Hmm. So I was really happy to be able to do that. Charlotte, this I'm a librarian, and I, I recommend its own to a lot of people. Not everyone that comes in, we are a public library because people don't have that, don't want to read that type of type of novel. But anybody that is interested in literary fiction, and I, uh, we had Chad on the show a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, the Open Letters, a good friend to our show. Um, and I know we're talking about Enyard today, but I wanted to ask you, um, uh, just, I, I'd read a little bit about you and the fact that you had, uh, 
translated The Kindly Ones, which was a controversial novel that I, I actually read also, um, which um, if, if you want to talk a little bit about how you ended up with that one and, and had you received any feedback or flack for the controversial subject matter uh, from that novel. And, and just to let people know, just at a very quick description, uh, you know, the, it took place um, during World War II and it, it involved the protagonist was a gay Nazi and did you have any um, any any flack or uh, feedback about that novel and, and um, the impact that it had? Um, I, I got a lot of feedback. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I think there were some really excellent reviews of it, especially by Daniel Mendelssohn in the New York Review of Books, um, where he understood the connection to the Oresteia. It's all about, um, it, it, it deals with Orestes and... Um, fate and sort of what we as people have, like what our choices, how, how they matter and how we create our fate or, or not. And um, the way that I got to do that was uh, Jonathan Littell had, um, was working with uh, HarperCollins and so they were looking for a translator. Um, and so he he didn't want to know. Um, he sent he just asked for anonymous samples of translations. So he didn't actually know me as the translator when I sent in the sample. He just read the trans the sample of the translation of the first chapter, I think. Um, and I think there were maybe five or six different samples, and he he chose mine. And it was interesting because we have a lot in common. He's um, also very interested in Blanchot, who I've translated a lot, and. Um, and Genet, he was interested in a, he actually had translated part of a Genet book that I translated called Fragments of the Artwork for Stanford University Press. Um, and we're about the same age and it was, we, we ended up working together really well and I, I liked him a lot. Um, he's half French and half American and so working with a completely bilingual person on a translation was actually very helpful for me. Um, I actually really enjoyed translating that. It was one of the most difficult books that I've ever translated, obviously. Um, and since I've come to inhabit the voices of my narrators, I started dreaming in the voice of Awa, who is this Nazi. And it was um, a very powerful experience for me. I can imagine. Um, yeah. Now, you would, you would say The Kindly Ones was more difficult than Zone or Compass? More difficult psychologically. Okay. Um, yeah, not more difficult in terms of the language. Um, so technically not as difficult, but mentally it was more challenging. Yeah. yeah. Charlotte, there are a lot of um, probably hundreds of literary, musical, philosophical references in, in Compass. Did you, while, I know you don't read ahead, while you were translating, did you find yourself veering off into other paths musically literarily i would well i would try to whenever a musical piece came up i would try to play that while i was translating it so that would help a lot actually um i mean i grew up listening to classical music and so a lot of the references were um familiar for me not not a lot of the more obscure ones um but i mean that that world is one that i feel at home in so it wasn't something that i i felt like i i was out of my depth or anything had you um, read edward said's orientalism i know that's a book that kind of looms in the background throughout this novel it is yeah um actually i haven't read that um but 
I mean, the whole concept of Orientalism is is at issue in the novel. Um, what what comprises Orientalism and what we think of as other, um, and I think one of the main um, subjects of the novel is how there really is no. I mean, to the wise, nothing is foreign. Um, the West and the East are always intermingling. There is there is no like distinct East and West. Um, there's always influence of East on West and West on East. Um, and so I think that's one of the main subjects of the novel, actually. And we should mention for readers that are not familiar, what we're talking about is uh, a landmark work by a, an author named Edward Said called Orientalism. He uh, was uh, a, th- a great thinker who posited that uh, constructions of the Arab world specifically, but of, of the East in general, what we call the Orient, was a political act by the West to define it, to shape it, and to contain it. Um, and as Charlotte correctly points out, in the novel, the narrator, Franz, who is an Austrian musicologist, uh, demonstrates uh, a real affinity for the Arab world and seems to think that the concept of Orientalism itself uh, is false, that, that, as Charlotte just mentioned, East and West intermingle, and uh, there's a very humanist tone to the book, I would argue, uh, in saying that... Um, People, despite their backgrounds or cultures, are all just people and are very interesting. My, my understanding is the author also has uh, a real affinity for the Arab world and, and a great deal of experience in it. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, he actually is a translator of Arabic and Persian into French. Um, he's translated some classic classic Arabic books. I, I forget which ones. But um he, speak, he teaches Arabic at the University of Barcelona, and um, he also speaks Farsi, and um, he's lived for, I think, three years in Syria uh, teaching French. So he's very closely um, linked with the Arabic world. And for those uh, people that don't know, also, the, the French and the Arab world have had a long and difficult relationship. Uh, if anybody has ever seen the Battle of Algiers, you can take a look at that and discover a little more what I'm talking about. Um, some of that history is actually in the book. Yes, some of the history is in the book, but you know, we should frame it so that people who are listening to the show know that um, there, there's a great deal more going on. Uh, there's a great deal of political subtext oh, yes. in what's going on oh, in the yes. book here. And I wanted to ask you, Charlotte, that political subtext, first of all, how did you approach bringing that to life for English-speaking readers who may not be as aware of this? I guess what I do is I, I just let the text speak for itself. I try not to insert myself into a book too much. So um, I stayed as I've stayed as faithful as possible to the original French and just tried to convey what the text was saying. Um, I don't believe in the translator and um, you know inserting his or her own voice into something. I, I try to let the text speak for itself. So uh, Compass was actually really easy with, I mean, it was easy for me to do that because it's such a powerful, Ritter's voice, the Franz Ritter is the narrator, his voice is such a powerful voice and it's so um, convincing and persuasive that um, I could just let him speak for himself. And um, I think the excerpts, I mean, there are a lot of political issues at stake, but I think that they come through on their own um, without any notes or anything like that. I think it's important to add too, is you know, especially in America. I don't know how it is in France. We have this, you know, us against them mentality, you know, about the Middle East. 
Um, one of the most beautiful descriptions I saw in the book was uh, pages 126 and 127, where he was describing Aleppo. And as oh, a lot of people know, there's been a, a civil war there, and Aleppo's pretty much destroyed now. And I, I, I've seen a lot of the you know, current footage of what happened there. And then I was reading this like beautiful description of this very vibrant cosmopolitan culture. And it, it was, it, that, the reading that and thinking about what's happening, you know, there currently, it was, it was uh, one of the most disheartening things for me for the novel. And it was actually kind of upsetting and especially in America and, and, you know, in our political climate, we have such a, um, a biased view of, of, the Orient or, or, you know, the Middle East. And um, I thought that the ways that it came through in the book were subtle, but also very important and totally relevant, um, much way uh, in submission by Welbeck that, you know, that how relative, or I mean, excuse me, how relevant it was uh, when that was published as well. We live in this time of discrimination and stereotyping of this, this region. You know, you look at any, you know, right-wing news source and it's like you know us against them it's you know muslims are bad and um i think this shows that you know their society is thousands and thousands of years older than ours and much in some ways much more advanced and um i thought that this was a great representation of that charlotte have yeah. you oh sorry go ahead no i agree i um in one of his interviews matthias now was saying that um one of his goals in Compass was to show that Syria is not just a cemetery. I mean, the the images that we get on the news looks just like it's it's all rubble and it's you know just a wasteland. But um, as you say, there are thousands of years of culture there, and so he wanted to show, uh, especially with the Palmyra and the Aleppo scenes, that um, it's actually a really beautiful country and it's I mean not completely destroyed. Yeah, there's there's a <laughs> sentence in there something about if journalists would pay attention to um, there, pay attention to the cultural history. There are a thousand beautiful things about art for every decapitation or awful display of violence that there is, but the journalists won't pay attention to it. Uh-huh. I was yeah. I was yeah. going to ask you, have you read Michel Welbeck in the in the French, or or even in translation? Um, I I I think I've read I read Submission a while ago. Yeah, I, I've oh, okay. I've read. Um, the elementary protocols, I think. There have been some comparisons, and I, I see them superficially between Enar and Welbeck, but I see a lot more, or I feel a lot more anger in Welbeck's work and lust, but this self-awareness of self-indulgence, and that's the thing I see that, that ties in with Enar, this awareness of their own self-indulgence, but... Inar doesn't seem to have that anger or that lust. There's still a lot of sexual themes to his work, but he's um, there's just a, a, a more of a tone of sadness than than anger. And I, I just didn't really see the, the comparison there, other than that they're both French and they're both highly praised by the literati. Yeah, I, I don't think I would compare Inar to Welbeck. I, I would compare him more to Thomas Mann or um, James Joyce or... I mean, some a lot of non-French writers. Um, his writing to me is, um, it's especially in Compass. It's, there's a tone of melancholy, as you say. Um, it's very Viennese. Um, 
and no, there's uh, there is hope also. I mean, I, I think there's mm-hmm. a lack of hope in a lot of Welbeck, um, and a, a sort of um, a cynicism that there isn't in Enoch. I didn't see the cynicism. What about Celine? Do you see any ties? I just I think the stream of consciousness narrative. Um, have you ever translated Celine? Just out of curiosity. No, I haven't. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean the the stream of consciousness is similar. Um, I guess I would think more of the kindly ones with Celine. Um, I don't know. I think Enal sort of stands on his own. It's hard for me to compare him with a contemporary author right now. I, w- I was trying to think of that for the show, just not to put him in any box, but just to give readers who might not be familiar with him an impression of what they're they're coming into. And the the, the American authors I thought of were William Gaddis, whose his his novel Agape Agape that was published posthumously in the uh, first part of the 21st century is is the same idea. It's it's a man on his deathbed who is, it's much shorter, but he's he's musing about his life and um, about music and art. Um, William Gaddis, William Volman is another one who is a really ambitious writer who has a really long reach when it comes to literary and artistic references. Um, so readers who, who are familiar with those guys, and also Marilyn Robinson a little bit. And art has this, at least the way you translate it, Charlotte, he has this awesome talent, and it it's really hard-hitting for me in the way his narrative is stream of consciousness. He has these aphoristic phrases that are really amazing and unique and powerful, but just as quick as they come and as heavy as they hit, they're gone and buried in the text. And some of those phrases reminded me a little bit of the beauty and simplicity of Marilyn Robinson's prose. Um, so I just wanted to throw some authors out there for readers who aren't familiar with Einar and I would definitely agree with references. the Volman and the Gaddis comparisons. I, I don't actually know Marilyn Robinson's work, but um, I, I think that that's very true about especially Volman, I think. I just wanted to add, just to tie in what Mike was saying too, that he's a very unique writer. I mean, I, I can't compare Zone to anything. Um, it's one of my favorite novels written all the time, and um, we mentioned it early. It's an over 500-page sentence, and it's about a veteran of the Israeli-Palestine War that's on a train journey um, with a – it's a box, right? A briefcase a, full a, of secrets. Yeah, a briefcase full of secrets, which contains um, atrocities and uh, – War crimes, really? Yeah, war crimes. And um, it, there's nothing else that I, I could compare that novel to. Um, but we do try and um, – some of our – you know, we're, we're from the south side of Chicago, and we're – this isn't a real, we're not academics. So we try and throw out some authors that people might relate to. The only thing about Volman, though, I think his subject matter is always a little. Um, it's always on the margins. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. a better of marginal stuff. And I, I would say, just to talk about NR for a second with Wilbeck, there's humor in Compass, which mm-hmm. I would say is not the case in, in uh, Submission. Submission, as I think Charles already pointed out, is a deeply cynical novel that also is a very Western religious prism over the entire subject. Inard has, has flashes of, of humor and, and grace that I don't necessarily see uh, in a lot of Hulbeck's work unless you are thinking of cruel jokes. Yeah. And I, I would say that, you know, cr- cruel humor can be funny as well, but that the two are not necessarily the same, and, and linking them just because of the same subject matter seems lazy to me, yeah, I would say. Yeah, very. I agree. 
Yeah, I agree too. That's it. While we're at it, why don't we play another quick reading from Compass? Again, we're with Charlotte Mandel, and she's translated this wonderful book. Uh, we'll be back in just about two minutes after we hear this this short, short reading. Waking up was comical. The voices of the first tourists jarred us just before dawn. They were from Swabia, and their sing-song dialect sounded completely out of place in Palmyra. Before pushing back the blanket, we were shivering beneath, intertwined like lost souls. I was dreaming that I was waking up in an inn near Stuttgart. Totally disoriented, I opened my eyes onto a group of hiking boots, thick socks, legs, some hairy, others not, topped off with sand-colored shorts. I suppose these good people must have been just as embarrassed as we. They had wanted to enjoy the sunrise over the ruins and fell into a camp of Orientalists. I was overcome with a terrible shame. I immediately pulled the blanket over our heads in an idiotic reflex that was even more ridiculous. Sarah had awakened as well and was tittering. Stop it, she whispered. They'll think we're naked underneath. The Germans must have made our bodies out under the blankets and heard our whispering. No way am I getting out of here, I muttered. Getting out was an entirely relative expression since we were outside, but just as children hide in an imaginary cave at the bottom of their sheets, it was out of the question that I would rejoin the outside world until these invaders had left. Sarah joined willingly in the game laughing. She had arranged for a current of air that would allow us not to suffocate completely. From a fold she spied on the position of the enemy warriors around us who seemed not to want to leave the parvis. I inhaled her breath, the smell of her body upon wakening. She was right up against me, lying on her stomach. I dared slip my arm around her shoulders in a gesture I hoped could seem brotherly. She turned her face and smiled at me. I prayed to Aphrodite or Ishtar to transform our shelter into rocks, make us invisible, and leave us there for eternity. In the corner of this happiness that I had made without meaning to, thanks to the Swabian crusaders sent by an inspired god, she was looking at me, motionless and smiling, her lips a few centimeters from mine. And once again, that was a reading from the new book, Compass. We also do want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company and Makai McRaven for our background music once again this week. That was great. Thanks, Jamie. Um, that passage reminds me that this novel can be experienced on, on many levels, and one of them is as a love story. The, that passage uh, involved the same Sarah that I mentioned earlier, the, the love interest of the narrator, Franz, and they are in the uh, the ruins of a palace in Palmyra, Palmyra or Palmyra, an ancient uh, Palmyra. Palmyra, an ancient city in in um, Syria. And <laughs> they've decided to spend the night so they can watch the the sunrise in the morning in from the ruins. And some tourists from I think some African tourists have have stumbled upon them in the morning. And um, they're hiding under the, under the blankets. It's a telling moment. It's a moment of humanism, I thought, in the novel. Uh, a very interesting, again, juxtaposition of Western Moors with, I guess, Eastern Moors, in a sense. That's very interesting that he's most concerned about uh, thinking people would find him naked under a blanket. Well, that's what was cool about Sarah, too, even though she was this hyper-academic she loved like crime museums, you know, with photos I, of. That made me think of you. Jeremy. Yeah, I, <laughs> I also am a big, huge true crime buff, and I love like the, there's a museum in Death of Los Angeles. It's probably one of the most gruesome places I've ever been. I I went there with four people, and two of us made it all the way through. And I have this, um, but it was a very uh, you know you talk about East and West, but it was a very you know she's a 
an academic. She's traveled all over the world. She's done all these um, studies and, and writings, but she loves true crime. And, you know, um, I also, I'm not sure how you say his name, the Iranian author that's mentioned. Um, Sadegh Hadayat. Hadayat. Is that sound right, Charlotte? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, wrote The Blind Owl, and I, I tried to get a copy from the library before we... Uh, before we had uh, before we had the show today, because I I felt like that there must be some influence or or just it was mentioned a few times in the novel. Have you ever? I was just curious if you'd read it or you knew much about it. No, I haven't. I want to read it. Um, it sounds like an amazing novel. I think I might if it's good. I'll cover it on a later show. But sounds Jamie good. had something to say. Well, we got to go to break. We got to obviously uh, take a couple minutes to thank the folks that make this station and this program possible. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and we're going to be back with Charlotte Mandel in just about two minutes. Don't go anywhere. And we are back here. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is I-94, and we are joined again after the break here by Charlotte Mandel, the translator of the new book by Matthias Ennard, Compass. And I wanted to start off real quickly and um, make an admission here. I actually did not warm up to this novel at all. Uh, I thought it was um, rather pretentious, candidly. And Having said that, uh, I want to also say that sometimes, and I don't think when people read books or review books, they admit this, sometimes you're kind of in a mindset where a book grabs you and you really enjoy it. Sometimes you're in a mindset where a book doesn't grab you at all, but you come back to it later on and it grabs you. And as I've been leafing through the book, we've had these books, what, there's a couple months, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I've been leafing through the book occasionally on and off, and um, I will say I've warmed up to it a little more. I'm going to play a segment later on that I, I feel does kind of tip to what I was saying. But I, I wanted to say, you know, we really should talk a little bit about what it is uh, about the mindset of people when they read a book, whether they can get into it and enjoy it or not. I know that for years I did not read Proust. I thought it was hard to get into. And then one summer I sat down and read the entire thing. Charlotte, when you read books, and do you ever have that experience as well? Do you ever get into a, a book and say, hmm, it's not for me, put it down, and then come back to it later on and find you really enjoyed it? Or does that not happen at all in your line of work? Yeah, no, it happens all the time. I, I think time is really important, timing. I mean, I think that if you start reading something at the wrong time, it just doesn't click and you don't really like it. Um, that's happened a lot with me over the years. Um, and then also I'll go back to read a book and it'll be totally different. Like I'm rereading re Ulysses right now and um, it's just completely different from what I remember from when I read it like 20 years ago. <laughs> I still love it, but it's just completely different. I would so, add, um, sorry. Yeah. I would no, add, I just think it's completely, it, it depends on where you are. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I just didn't want to interrupt you. Um, the example I always use in this case is when I was in eighth grade, they made us read The Great Gatsby. And I read, I love Fitzgerald. I would rather you guys, and, uh, I loved Compass too, FY. Mike and I liked it. Jamie didn't. And that's going to happen when we review stuff. And I'm glad Jamie's being honest about it. However, like I read The Great Gatsby when I was in eighth grade. And I was like, what is this rich guy's problem? You know? And then you, <laughs> and then you read it when you're like 30 and you're like, oh my God, this guy's alienated. He has no friends, you know? And, and then you get it. And, <laughs> and I think that was just, tying into what Jamie said, you know, when you read things at different times, and obviously Jamie's a grown man, but there's there's been a lot of books that I've, uh, that have been recommended to me, and then I'll pick them up at a later time, um, and Ulysses is one. Um, I actually, we talk a little bit about this on the show, but Mike and I are both in recovery, and I, I read Ulysses when I was still drinking, and I um, 
and then I, I read it again in sobriety and I was just like, whoa, these are two different books, you know, and I, I read it with a skeleton key. There was, I forgot the gentleman's name, but it kind of translates the, there are a few of them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so when I, I, the second time I read, it, I read it with a skeleton key and, I, and it, it just, it, it all kind of tied in for me. But I, I, I think that's important, you know, and, and I think that's one of the problems when you, you expose kids to literature that they might not, um, you know, they might not understand or, or understand the, like, the underlying themes at a young age. You know, sometimes it can ruin books for people. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I think that when I came to the book, um, I'm a little tired of reading books that all seem to be about academics. Um, the Knicks came out, was very well-reviewed, and I thought it was... I did, and I thought it was terrible. I didn't like. The I, I thought it was. I, I thought it was incredibly, incredibly far more pretentious than Compass. Uh, I, I had a hard time understanding though why there's such a glut of books now about academics, and it's something that I think is really. This is a particularly American rant, but um, there's the entire University of Iowa Writers Workshop, and it seems that all the people that are writing these books are writing about their experience as a teacher, uh, and the the sadness of them being a middle-aged white professor. I, I'm tired of that. I, I, I think there's many more <laughs> subjects to talk about. So perhaps when I approached Compass having read, you know, a couple books and being like, man, another book about a middle-aged white guy professor. You know, reading Franz obviously is a musicologist, but he's an academic. Sarah's an academic. That could have been what put me off. And, you know, obviously this is coming out of a completely different culture and Compass is at its root not about being a middle-aged white guy musicologist. No, That's no. not what the book's about at no. all. But... I, I do wonder if we're in a situation right now where so many themes are being repeated in books that we're kind of creating a roadblock to um, getting at other issues in literature. You know, a lot of the big so-called lit fiction books that have been released lately in the United States kind of do fall into that category. It's disappointing. Well, I, th I think the push for translation helps curb against that a little bit. We talked to Open Letter a couple of weeks ago. New Directions has been doing translations since I think they started. Sixty-four. I thought it was the 30s. No, 64. Oh, okay. Yep. For some reason, I thought... I believe it was Nabokov that was the okay. first one. I, I thought they had translated Celine for some reason. But I, I feel like... Later, later. No, much later. I yeah. think it was republished. <coughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, Dalkey Archive is translating. Um, there's one in Texas that, that opened up shop, Deep Vellum. There, there are quite a few translations coming out. And uh, New Vessel. New Vessel. Yeah, of course, the New York Review stuff. of Books is New York Review of Books. Is, is releasing all stuff. It's kind of a boom time. And, Sean, that's a, this is a good segue to a question I wanted to ask you specifically. It seems like it's a boom time for translators. Um, can you talk a little bit about what attracted you to being a, a translator in literature in the first place? Oh, it's kind of a long story. That's um, great. We love long stories. Yeah, we have a lot <laughs> of time uh, left. <laughs> uh, let's see. Starting when I was 10, both my parents were university teachers, and so we had summers off. And so starting when I was 10, we spent summers in either French or uh, the Swiss, the French or the Swiss Alps, mostly the French Alps. And so that's how I got interested in French. Um, and then... Uh, I went to Boston Latin School. I'm from Boston, so I went to Boston Latin School, which is the oldest um, public school in the country. It was founded in 1635, and they still make you t uh, take five years of Latin. Um, and so I actually started to really like that, and um, in my advanced placement class, we translated Virgil's Aeneid, and uh, I loved that. It was like the best thing I'd ever done. So um, that sort of got me hooked on translation. 
Um, and then when I went, I went to Bard College, and um, you have to do a senior project. Um, when you're a senior, it's like a book-length essay or a creative project. So I translated a book um, by a contemporary French poet named Jean-Paul Auxmery. Um, and then I also published a lot of translations in magazines, and that's when I, I really started, got serious at um, French translation. Um, and then soon after I graduated, um, I was still publishing poems mostly in magazines, translations like Apollina and Sandra. Um, and a friend of mine named Pierre Joris, who is a translator, um, was asked by Stanford University Press to translate a book by Maurice Blanchot, uh, The Work of Fire. Um, and he didn't have time, so he recommended me. And so I sent in a sample chapter and the editor liked it a lot, uh, Helen Tarter at Stanford. And that sort of that was my first book was a, a actually really difficult book of essays by Blanchot um, called The Work of Fire. Um, and so then I ended up doing, I think, three more books by Blanchot for Stanford, and, and that started my career. But I've been really lucky, actually, that I haven't really had to go out and, and sell myself to publishers. Like, they've always come to me, which is, is very unusual <laughs> for translators. Yeah, it is. <laughs> were, you, were you also a writer yourself of your own stuff? Did, did you go through a writing program or anything like that to, to do this? Or are you just purely a translator of, of other people's work? No, I'm purely a translator. I, I feel really fulfilled from translating. I mean, I feel like translating is writing also, so I don't feel like I need to do my own writing. Um, I, I like writing in other people's voices, I guess. Charlotte, you've translated over 200 novels. Is that true? No, I wish. Okay. <laughs> um, I thought I read uh, that in an interview. Like Sorry. Maybe um, 40, 42, oh, okay. maybe? That's, well, that's a considerable amount. I'm not, that's a lot of books. Because when I read 200, I was like, oh, my God, she must translate like a book a week or something. You know, I, <laughs> um, sorry, that was, a, that, was a, that was a real example of fake news that I made yeah, up. So. <laughs> Feels like 200 sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I read an interview with you. I, I must have misread that. Um, my senior project um, when I was an undergrad, I, did, I applied Noam Chomsky's theory of language acquisition to Straight Outta Compton by NWA. I got an A on it, and I probably spent three hours on it. I like wrote it the night before, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> do you have any specific authors, uh, French authors, that you could recommend that are uh, available in translation that we may have may have not heard of, or or anything interesting coming down the pipeline in in, a, in the wave of French literature? Um, I know, and this is not relevant to the discussion, but there's a new wave of French horror films that I'm very into. And um, I was just wondering if there's any avant-garde or um, perhaps exciting books that are that are um, being translated right now that we might not know about. Um, Volodine is an interesting um, sort of sci-fi novelist that um, they've just, I think uh, Jeffrey Zuckerman just came out with a translation um, I think it's called Radiant Terminus. Open Ladder yeah. published mm -hmm. that, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. Right. yeah. We had Chad on the show a couple of weeks ago. I think he sent us that one. I didn't read it, though. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, the same translator, Jeffrey Zuckerman, translated Ananda Davies' Eve Out of Her Ruins, which is a beautiful book. Um, in terms of horror and sci-fi, I think Volodine would probably be the, the most interesting one right now. Um... I'll have to think about that question. There are there are quite a few interesting. Uh, I think Marian Dye is an interesting one. Um, 
I mean, personally, I just think Einau is the most interesting of all, so I feel really lucky to be his translator. Have you read uh, <laughs> Edouard Lewis? His his book, The End of Eddie, is a bestseller currently in, in France, and it's just been released in translation over here to, to great acclaim. Um, I'm just interested if you're, if you're following, like, the kind of pop literature trends in France as well. Not so much, no. Um, actually, there's a new book by Laurent Binet, which sounds interesting, about... Um, like Christeva and Barthes and a whole bunch of interesting critical theorists, um, which I haven't read, but that sounds like an interesting book. Um, but no, I, I don't usually follow the pop trend so much. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just uh, I was just curious. I was talking about the the French wave of horror films. Um, I'm a big horror buff. Um, I, I love literary fiction, and but there is there's uh raw was one of them and, and martyrs there's some of the films that are coming out of there and it, it's it, it takes it like beyond next level I, I it's like the new wave of french horror films i just i just mentioned that because that was something i was into but uh, mike did you have something well she, you mentioned volodine is that is that his name yeah mm-hmm. and i think from what i read an open letter about him all a lot of his works are interconnected is that right I think so. I actually haven't read a lot of him, but I've just been reading about him. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to link that to Einar and talk about some of the themes that you've seen running through his work. Um, another thing that Compass is about is the, this idea of self and other and the blend of the two. And one of the things that's really interesting to me about uh, about the author is his attempt to take on the other in each of these novels that have been translated into English. In Zone, the narrator is half Croatian, half French. In Street of Thieves, it's a young Moroccan man who is exiled to Spain. And in, in Compass, the narrator is a um, middle-aged Austrian, half Austrian, half Frenchman. And um, what what other themes do you notice running through Matthias's work or Matthias's work? I think that's really true. I think that um, I think one of his points is that we, we like nationalism is a construct. Like we are not one single thing. We're a lot of different things. Um, and so, um, as you say, a lot of his narrators are half one thing and half another, like half Croatian, half French, or Ritter is half Viennese and half French. Um, and they usually speak two languages, at least. Um, I think Matia speaks about five or six. Um, Charlotte, do you think, think anybody can learn another language? I'm sorry, what was that? Do you think anybody can learn another language? I feel like oh, a, a lot of us here make it to be this magical, impossible feat to learn another language. I think pr- probably because we're sort of stuck in America, where, where it's monolingual. I think if we lived in Europe, it would be a lot easier because we'd be surrounded by all of these different languages all the time. Um, but no, I think anybody can, definitely. I, I think that we, we've we sort of built a block against learning other languages since we, we don't usually have to. Um, but in Europe, it's kind of necessary. I mean, um, yeah, no, and I think that um, that the fact that his narrators usually speak in different languages, too, um, is an important one because um, we also sort of become different people when we speak different languages and like slipping from one character to another, I think is, is essential to a lot of his novels. 
Well, this is a good point to play a final reading from Compass again, translated here by Charlotte. We'll be back in about two minutes. Strange, the dialogues that start up in the random geography of cemeteries. I thought as I meditated in front of Heinrich Hein, the Orientalist, quote, where will the final rest of the weary walker be? Under the palm trees of the south or the lindens of the Rhine, unquote. None of the above, under the chestnut trees of Montmartre. A liar, some roses, a marble butterfly, a thin face bent forward between a family named March and a lady named Bucher. Two black tombstones framing Hines' immaculate white, overlooking them like a sad guardian. An underground network joins the burial sites together. Hine with the musicians Hector Belios and Charles Valentin Elkin. Nearby, or to Halevi, the composer of La Juve, they're all there. They keep each other company, rub elbows down below. Theophile Gautier, the friend of the good Henry Hein, a little further on. Maxime Ducamp, who accompanied Flaubert to Egypt and experienced pleasure with Kuchik Hanim, and with the very Christian Ernest Renan. There must be many secret debates between these souls. At night, animated conversations transmitted by the roots of the maples and the willow was underground, silent concerts attended by the eager audience of the defunct. Berlioz shared his tomb with his poor Ophelia. Hein was apparently alone in his. And this thought, childlike as it was, made me feel a little sad. And we're back. I just, uh, Charlotte, I had another question for you. you. Did you ever read or are you familiar with Edouard Levey? I might be slaughtering the name, L-E-V-E. Uh, no, I've heard about him. No, I haven't. Um, I, I just want to mention, since we are talking about French literature, he was a, a French writer that actually, he wrote a book called Suicide, and he turned it in as his suicide note and then committed suicide after it. And it's one of the most, uh, Dalkey published it, or actually, Dalkey's going to be on our uh, next show. But I just want to mention it because um, for some of our listeners out there, it's a really fascinating look at someone in the darkest moments, and I, I, I've never read anything like it. He has another one that Dalkey published called Auto Portrait. Yeah, that's cool. That, that, that one actually reminds me a little bit of at least the narrative style of Compass. It's um, it's very free associative, and um, there are a lot of non sequiturs in stream of consciousness, but it's really beautiful. Auto Portrait by Edouard LeVay. That brings up a question I had. You know, stream of consciousness novels um, are actually nothing new. But they seem to be, no. be present, presented as, as kind of experimental and daring, uh, which strikes me as, as odd. You know, it's, it's now a, a well-established literary form and a novel format. Charlotte, was, you, you mentioned very early in the program that that was something that attracted to you, this book. Why, why was the stream of consciousness delivery so attractive to you? I guess part of it is that I, because I don't read ahead, I always am interested in what happens next. And in stream of consciousness... Um, there's always something happening next. <laughs> um, there's no like positive stop. So um, it's actually much more interesting for me to translate long sentences than it is for me to translate short ones. Um, just because I, I sort of get caught up in the narrative and I get um, I become sort of part of that voice. Um, it's kind of like doing like a literary jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to figure out where the sentence is going. Um, and it's, it's, for me, it's really fascinating and um, challenging and enjoyable and also really exciting 
<laughs> Zone must have been very exciting for you since it's one sentence. It was. Yeah. It was really hard to stop translating that. That was my main challenge was figuring out when to stop for the day. <laughs> I, wa- I wanted to throw this question to everyone that's here right now about so some of the reviews I read. I don't necessarily agree with this. Hmm. Um, one of them called Compass a Fever Dream. And one of them called it uh, an opium tinged whatever. That's because they only read the first sentence. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, you know, and you know, they get high a couple times in the book, and they you know, but I don't think that he's there. What the point was is that he's in a fever dream, or that he was stoned on opium the whole time, or anything like well, that. Well, we should say that the novel takes place over the course of about seven, eight hours. Yeah, he's Franz is an insomniac, and he's ill. Yeah, we we don't know what his illness is, but we know it's bad. And um, but I didn't I didn't get the no. It was like I, I thought of it as a kind of like death yelp. <laughs> he's he's afraid of dying, and he wants to shove it all in. Yeah, just get it out there before he for. But I I didn't have this like, you know, usually when you read books that are you know, based on drug experiences or or quote unquote a fever dream, it's like more surreal. Or but I. I it wasn't like a, a realistic, straightforward narrative, but I also didn't find it to be like druggy. Right? I agree. I was thinking about that too. Yeah. There are some extended parts of the narrative that that focus on opium. He's Franz is really kind of infatuated with the drug, and having smoked it a couple of times, he, there are a few pages where he goes on about it. But no, it does. There, there isn't that that burrows like. Yeah, I think it's just lazy reviewing, like Jamie said. Uh, I'm going to read the first couple chapters. Oh, it's stream of consciousness. He smokes opium. Let me just throw this out there. Yeah, I mean, other reviews, generally the reviews, too, the trans- reviews of the translation have been uniformly excellent. So, I mean, that's yeah, a yeah. feather in, in Charlotte's cap. The reviews uh, overseas uh, have been mixed. Um, okay, I haven't seen them. Yeah, some of the reviews for, uh, for the book have been uh, rapturous. Uh, the, the Guardian United, was rapturous. The Guardian I, was I certainly rapturous. Yeah. Uh, the New Statesman was less so mm-hmm. rapturous, calling it plotting and dull, um, <laughs> while praising the translation. It should be noted. Um, it, that brings up an interesting point, though. Do you ever read reviews, Charlotte? My, my mother. I ask this question because my mother's uh, a very well-published novelist, uh, and whenever a writer tells me they don't read reviews, I never believe them because I've seen my mother read her reviews, and I'm a published author myself, and I, I absolutely read my reviews. Do you read reviews of your stuff and take anything away from that? I read the reviews, definitely. Um, no, I don't. I try not to let anything influence the way I work. I mean, I, I always um, translate sort of from the book and I mean whenever I translate a book I always try to think that there's nothing else exists it's just me and the book Um, and that helps me a lot actually Um, I find reviews helpful definitely Um, and if they do find something wrong with the translation I would definitely want to know what that was well we've just got a couple minutes left before we've got to end the show for the day any final thoughts on the work of Aynard and the translation I I think he ranks up there with the best of them and um I can see what you're saying about the about the pretentiousness, Jamie, especially with all the high-minded references. But um, I think we're just we're dealing with a, a highly intelligent, highly experienced author, and and one that's really aware of his right size. There are a lot of references in the book to Franz using letters to Sarah, his, 
his love interest to to express his erudition using using it as an excuse to display his knowledge on larger affairs and there's one point where he writes in a letter that it's really hard work to try to live up to his pretentiousness um <laughs> well that's also him showing off though i mean he does come off in in one sense you can look at him maybe as a second-rate musicologist who's trying to show off to impress a woman right right and i think he he's aware of that i think Anard is is aware of that, um, and aware of how that might reflect on himself as the author. Um, but I, I think I think Compass and I think Zone Street of Thieves is is great, but less so. I think those are going to last a, a really long time. I just want to mention too when I when I said Celine earlier, I was I was thinking mainly of his description of place. Um, most uh, I've I've read the uh, long day. Uh, Death in the Installment Plan. What's the other one? Uh, Journey to the End of the Night. Journey to the End of the Night. And uh, they consist of a lot of traveling and just description of place. So I did want to end that, you know, I don't feel like his style or anything, but I did get a little bit of a... I, I thought of Celine. Maybe it's just because he's French. I don't know. I read a lot of Celine when I was younger. So I just wanted to close with that. So, Charlotte, what do you have coming up in the docket next that we can look forward to from you? I'm actually doing another Enar novel, which is about Michelangelo being commissioned by the Sultan of Constantinople to design a bridge over the Golden Horn. Um, it's called Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants. Uh, and that'll be coming out from New Directions and also from Fitzcarraldo in the UK. And they also published Compass, too. Right. Um, so it's actually a really fall. beautiful novel. And that'll be coming out in the fall or the winter, or is there a publication date not set? Probably not until 2018, because um, I think they need a little time in between. Um, not sure exactly when. Okay. Well, we want to thank, uh, again, we've been speaking today with translator Charlotte Mandel. She is the translator of the book by Matthias Einard, a French author, Compass. This came out from New Directions Book. Our next live show will be in two weeks. We'll be with the Dalkey Archive, and I've just been handed a 600-page doorstop, <laughs> a biography of Baltus, which I will plow through. I happen to like Baltus. I want to thank everybody out there. Charlotte, thank you so much thank for your you, time. Charlotte. Thank, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. It was lovely. It's wonderful. So we uh, will be back in two weeks. We'll see you then. Have a wonderful 4th of July, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. Be this, safe. of course, is Lumpin' Radio. I-94 is Lumpin Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured a discussion of Compass by Matthias Einard, published in America by New Directions. Music from the International Anthem Recording Company archive was used with kind permission. This episode aired originally on July 2, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpin Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, Intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.